Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. For the last several weeks, we've been grappling with the idea that General Electric is fleeing Connecticut for Boston. Among the many issues the departure has raised is the seemingly never-ending incentive battle between the states. Coming up later in the show, Richard Florida, one of the world's big thinkers on urbanism and the vitality of cities, wonders with us about whether Massachusetts actually got such a good deal. But first, we'll talk with someone who'll tell us the story of another iconic inventive company that started right here in our state and has been innovating ever since. Gerber Scientific bears the name of the man who founded it, H. Joseph Gerber, a man whose name is not as well-known as Thomas Edison or other great inventors, but who may have had as big an impact as any. Today, where we live, David Gerber tells us the amazing story of his father, a man who escaped the Holocaust only to revolutionize manufacturing in America. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. David Gerber is author of The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber, and he joins us in the studio today. David Gerber, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into a lot of specifics, give us an overview for people who've not really heard this name before. Who was H. Joseph Gerber? Well, uh, my dad, H. Joseph (laughs) Gerber, uh, was an inventor. He came to America in 1940 after um, two years under Nazi rule uh, in Vienna and soon came to Hartford, was a Weaver graduate, and then went on to become a uh, an engineer and an inventor. He developed um, the computer automation for a whole wide range of industries, really the products that we think of involved in our lives every day, from uh, our cars to our clothing to our electronics devices, uh, printed matter, um, and uh, a whole host of additional industries. And so when people say that he was the Thomas Edison of manufacturing, it's, it's not hyperbole. It's, it's truly um, the type of invention that rivals the great inventors of, of all time like Edison. Well, I think that the impact is partly the range, the breadth of different industries, but also in each of these industries. My dad and his company introduced the first computer-automated systems for manufacturing. And so today, um, the products are cheaper, are better, and are more varied. You have uh, wardrobes that are larger. We don't darn or mend anymore. Um, Our signs and bus wraps have photographic images. Um, Our electronic devices are ubiquitous. We fly in jumbo jets, and we get our eyeglass lenses in the mall in about an hour. These are things that we take for granted right now, and we'll talk about some of these things that have uh, have been revolutionary and that we again saw crop up because of the amazing inventions of, of Joseph Gerber. But let's start uh, early in his life. Uh, he grew up as, as a young man in Austria and survived the Holocaust. What can you tell us about young Joe Gerber? Well, he was uh, 13 years old when the uh, Anschluss occurred and the Nazis came to power in, in Austria. And as a boy, he was a born inventor. He invented mostly for 
pranks and uh for example he built a little contraption that would shoot flies through the window of his neighbor's apartment <laughs> um but when um nazi rule came to the country his inventive instincts became focused on much more serious imminent practical problems um how to survive for the two years that they were trapped in the country before they could come before my dad and his mother could come to america and uh, so he used his technical abilities to help save himself and his family. Uh, he and his father were put on a train headed toward Dachau, and he figured out how to disengage a latching mechanism on the train so that he could jump with his father off of the train. Um, when they returned back to Vienna, he amplified the reception on their radio so that they could hear foreign news broadcasts, so that they could strategize for how to get out of the country. Um, his father was eventually put on a transport to Poland one very cold winter, and he built, by retrofitting an old kerosene stove, a hand warmer for his father to bring with him. And, and these stories, they read uh, almost as they would be science fiction or uh, a, type of, um, a type of a heroic fiction that you don't really think of in real terms. You think of in terms of comic book terms, right? The, the, the superhuman character is able to come up with an invention out of almost nothing as a child, really, and, and, and help to save his family. That, that, is, that is an amazing thing under, under such pressure. As, as someone who grew, who grew up with these stories, I mean, how, how did that strike you, that your, that your father had these amazing ideas at such a young age? Well, I think one of the interesting things about writing his biography was finding out that these stories were as accurate as, uh, as portrayed um, when I learned from multiple different sources. Um, it, it was just part of the sort of lore and legend that I grew up with. And um, so even though I, I realized that they were indeed remarkable, um, I never sort of had that moment where I heard something new that struck me as um, unusual. It was just well, this is the kind of thing he does. It's, and we're talking with David Gerber, whose book is The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of uh, His Father, H. Joseph Gerber. And we're talking about this innovative life here on Where We Live Today. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. We, we have a, a little bit of a clip from a private audio tape uh, that was recorded, I believe, in France back in 1982. And it helps describe a little bit of how the, the Holocaust uh, affected your father. Your father is not alone, of course, in... Uh, wanting to maybe not talk about some of the stories that come from that time. But can you just set, set up how we came to hear this, this piece of tape before we hear it? Sure. This is an um, audio tape that my dad dictated as notes to himself. He was in France at the time. He had just come from Germany on a business assignment, and I think he was starting to think about writing his memoirs. And he was in the garden of this hotel, noticing the beauty of uh, his surroundings. You can hear the birds chirping in the background. And then he saw the laborers there who were tending the garden. And he thought about how they were doing this work to make the beauty for others. And that caused him to remember a time 50 years earlier when he was in a labor camp at Mauer by Wien outside of Vienna. And he was pulling heavy road-grading drums and given a couple of spoons of horse meat each day. Mm. Let's listen. I cannot be surrounded by all this beauty 
and remember the days when I spent in the Nazi war camp. And I remember some young Nazi sitting there ordering me to bring him some coffee. I put down my cart and ran to the kitchen where I asked for a cup of coffee for this Nazi. And when I came back, this young Nazi was sitting there with his feet up on the chair, surrounded by other KS men. And he laughed at me and he said, guess the world has switched. I am sure that you had a maid in your house and now you are my servant. Tell me what you think of when you hear that. Well, you, you asked about how the Holocaust affected him, and the tape goes on where my dad says, this left an impression on me that the world is divided into two parts, those who supply the needs of others and those whose needs are supplied. And I think this reflects the moral underpinnings of my dad's views toward automation. I think he saw technology as a way of facilitating a society in which laborers, um, although he had great respect and put great value on productive labor, they would be liberated from the uh, burdensome aspect, the drudgery of their labor. Mm. And so this this is more than just a, a man with a propensity for innovation and science in his mind. You really feel like much of what he, he built in his career was, was based on this foundational idea that came from this time he spent in the Nazi labor camp. This was part of it. When I um, started writing the book, I had assumed that my dad's most formative experience must be the Holocaust. And as I got into it, I, I realized that just that didn't square with some of the things I knew about my dad. He, um, you know, I figured maybe it was a need to complete a sense of shattered self that, that propelled him to, to work as, as intensely as he did. But he invented with great joy, and he had a lot of happiness in his life. And for Jews in Austria, uh, unlike in, in Germany, uh, society just vanished overnight um, when the, all the conditions that had ramped up from 33 to 38 were imposed immediately. And yet my dad focused above all on the importance of contributing to society through science. And so what I realized was that these attitudes had come from his grandfather, a man of science in Vienna, um, who raised my dad in significant part and who remained my dad's idol always. And if anything, the Holocaust solidified my dad's sense that his grandfather's views were enlightened, 
Mm. We're talking with David Gerber about his book, The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber. If you if you hear that name but don't know the, the story of the man, of course, Gerber Scientific is the is the Connecticut-based company here, but the inventor uh, who's behind it is is um, what this book is about. Um, we'll take some of your phone calls in just a moment. I, how did he come to Hartford? How did he end up here? Well, he arrived with his mother in New York in 1940, penniless, fatherless. And after a few months, he came to Hartford to work on the tobacco fields. The really remarkable thing to me about that period is that Despite all he had been through in his young age, he was able to envision a future for himself. And he came to Hartford with a plan. He was going to work for a year in order to have a bit of a financial buffer and then go to school to become an engineer. And he went to Weaver High School and explained to the principal his plan. Even though he'd been out of school for four years, he wanted to start as a junior he was going to take his freshman and sophomore courses on the side and take tests and do all of this while learning the English language and working uh, a full-time and a half job. And the principal resisted this idea at first, but finally relented when my dad agreed that if he failed one of his courses, he would start again as a freshman. <laughs> it's amazing. And he ended up graduating Weaver in two years? He did, on Dean's List. <laughs> That's amazing, and, and came without the language skills necessary to really be able to compete with his classmates, but overcame that as well. Yeah, by this time, um, my dad had been working in the tobacco fields and kitchens and, and so on, and so he said that uh, he, knew lang he knew bits of the English language, but they weren't quite the types that uh, they were going to be teaching in the English class. <laughs> I would bet not. I'm sure he learned some colorful language. Um, his first invention is the invention that launches his, his subsequent career, and maybe you can explain this invention because it, it hinges on something that's incredibly, incredibly simple. And when you tell the story about his innovation and his ability to make things up almost from scratch, it's maybe not surprising that an elastic waistband leads to all of this this fame and glory and riches. But at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. He, he creates a, a, a variable scale based on an elastic band. Right. Um, my... Um my father was able to bring one thing from Europe that his father had given him, and it was a pair of pajamas. Uh, about five years after coming to America, he was a scholarship student at Rensselaer, and he was up late one night trying to figure out how he was going to complete his design project that was due the next morning. He had fallen behind because I think he had discovered girls by this time. <laughs> and. Um, all of a sudden, it occurred to him that if he had a scale that could be expandable, which is sort of the opposite notion of a scale, scales are sort of fixed by definition, he could rapidly solve these problems and avoid having to do the measurements and computations and plotting. All of a sudden, it occurred to him that he could use the elastic of that pair of pajamas. So he removed the elastic. It was a European style of garment that allowed that, and he marked up a scale on the pajamas and solved his problems that night. He handed the assignment in. I got a very good grade on it. And um, when he got the good grade, he, he felt kind of a bad about that because he had not used the prescribed method. And so he explained to the professor that he had cheated. And the professor asked, you know, how could you have cheated? Everyone had a different design. And when he explained, 
the professor, instead of being upset that he didn't use the prescribed technique, was enthusiastic. <laughs> and that product, uh, my dad ultimately got a patent on and um, was the start of his company. And, and around that time, uh, he's, he's named as one of 10 outstanding young men in America. Um, it, talk Before we hear a little, a little tape of him accepting uh, this award or around that time, maybe you can explain what exactly that is. It sounds like a very old-fashioned notion, but it was actually quite a, quite a great honor. Yeah. I, I, this was an honor that was given by the Chamber of Commerce to uh, 10 men, I'm sure today, I don't think it would be called 10 Outstanding Young Men in America, but that being said, it was, it was uh, what, I guess this would have been in the 1950s? Was, yeah, 1952. My, yeah. Dad, my dad had been in America for 12 years, and um, the selection committee included uh, the likes of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And so he um, received the award, and I believe the clip that you have is uh, his uh, acceptance and, and thanks speech. honored, but humble as well, to have been chosen to such a high honor. Less than 13 years ago, at the age of 15, I arrived at these shores as a delayed pilgrim. You have taken me in. You have given me the privilege to work and the opportunity to learn. Only under our American economic moral and social system is it possible to grow to compete and to create as free human beings and as free citizens my life holds one ultimate aim namely to serve to serve you america thank you very much for this high honor that's h joseph gerber uh in his acceptance of of this honor, 10 outstanding young men. He was uh, only 12 years uh, here on American shores and already one of America's great inventors. Before we take a, a break, David, it speaks to something that's very and a very important theme here. He, he said over and over again he owed a lot to America. And in this time in which we, we're constantly grappling with America as an innovator or America being passed by or taking jobs and sending them overseas where people are more innovative than we are, he held very strongly to the notion that America was a place that he wanted to both invent in and invest in. He did indeed, and um, he once told me that when he first came to America, he found that it was the place that he had always dreamed of, even before he knew it existed. And this wasn't just the Holocaust experience. This was his early childhood, where the imperious instructors, if in Vienna would frown on his constantly asking questions. And in America, he found people complimented him on this and encouraged it. It was a whole different thought process. And he viewed the culture in Europe as what he called anti-innovative. Hmm. We're talking with David Gerber. His book is about his father. It's called The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber. Uh, someone who innovated and invented right here in Hartford, Connecticut. You can join us at 860-275-7266. We'll be right back after this break, where we live. (music) 
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the remarkable life of H. Joseph Gerber. It's the subject of a book called The Inventor's Dilemma by his son David Gerber. Uh, there's a book talk coming up at the Mandel JCC on April 19th at 7 o'clock. It is uh, in discussion on this book with our friend Dan Haar of the Hartford Current. We'll put up more information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. It's a fascinating tale. And, and one of the things that we want to get to is some of the patented innovations. And there's almost too many innovations and patents to, to go through. But he really changed the apparel industry. And we talked earlier about how um, he felt strongly that the drudgery of human labor is something he wanted to, in many ways, overcome with the work that he did. And the apparel industry, of course, as we well know, before automation was uh, a very, very difficult industry for people to work in. Tell us about the innovation. What is it he did? Well, his flagship product was the uh, automated cloth cutter. And this was a machine that uh, was able to cut tall stacks of cloth. The way that cloth was cut in order to get the kind of production volumes you need was in stacks of uh, upwards of 100, sometimes even 200 or more uh, ply. And the skill of the cutter was tremendous, not only in guiding the knife, but also in manipulating the stack so that you could cut it. And what my dad did was to recognize that there was a whole new way of cutting that would allow for automation. And um, the... The basic task was just to replace some cutters who were paid uh, about $3.50 an hour. And that was not justified by simple labor cost alone. And when my dad brought his invention to the board in order to get approval for investing in a considerable development effort, the board asked him to hire a consulting firm to really do a market study. The firm came back and said that maybe he would sell two machines, that's it. Mm. And he then convinced the board, based on a broader sense of what automated cutting could do for the apparel industry. Mm. I, I want to listen to a little bit of a tape. This is a, a, an interview with Peter Liebhold uh, from the Smithsonian talking about uh, this, uh, this apparel innovation. And I told him, I said, I realize it's going to be a slow path because not only do I have to come up with this machine, finish it. But I have to educate the whole industry. I have to tell them what they're doing is wrong. I have to sell a system uh, like like the report said, sell a half a million dollar system to somebody that they can buy a three and a half dollar mm-hmm. man to push it. Mm-hmm. There was no real need for such a machine at that time. Uh, David, we just have a few minutes left, but I, I want to ask you about this, this this struggle. Did, did you feel in researching this book about your father's life that he had a, a struggle internally about the automation systems he created and the impact on the worker? Well, he certainly was very conscious of the fact that there were individuals who were going to be displaced by this technology. And in addition to that, he had a, a keen sensitivity to the fact that in... Austria, it was the dislocations from uh, the Depression and some of the uh, effects of the first Industrial Revolution that had created a lot of the animosities that led to anti-Semitism and some of his personal experiences. But his view was this. When you think about the fact that replacing the actual cutters did not justify the machine, 
and you understand what did justify it. It was a much broader, more significant form of efficiency. By changing the way in which things, cloth was cut, my dad was able to generate efficiency proceeds primarily in material savings. And that was the single most significant cost component in a garment. So his view was that with not just automation, but with innovation that drove this kind of productivity, you could get growth in the industry and you could also create a way of competing against foreign labor so there would be more jobs in the U.S. and um, even though eventually the industry did increasingly move abroad and there was more automation, the impact was to keep the industry here for a generation or more and that's something very significant. Um, I was working at his company in uh, 1995 when a letter came in from the president of uh, an Unite, it was the largest apparel industry union. Mm. And this letter said, thanked my father for, and I believe this is a quote, preserving good and productive jobs in America in the industry. Mm. There are so many patents and so many amazing inventions, uh, more than we have time to talk about. The book, if you want to learn more, is The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber. Um, his father's uh, belongings, David Gerber's father's belongings, are also included in the Smithsonian's American Enterprise Exhibition. And there's uh, a talk about this book coming up at Mandel Jewish Community Center in Bloomfield, April 19th at 7 o'clock with our friend Dan Har from the Hartford Current. Thank you so much for sharing your father's story. I truly appreciate it, David. John, it's a great pleasure to be here. I thank you very much. As we talk about uh, American innovation, we're going to turn next to Richard Florida. He's the urbanist who has some questions about the move that GE is making from Connecticut to Boston, what it means for Boston and what it means for Connecticut. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up tomorrow, it's our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. Colin McEnroe will join me. As always, we'll talk about the big stories from this week's news. Hope you can join us. We've spent a lot of time deliberating GE's move from Fairfield to Boston, and so has our next guest. Richard Florida is director of the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto, and he's a clinical research professor at NYU's School of Professional Studies. He's also a senior editor of the Atlantic's City Lab and, of course, the author of The Rise of the Creative Class. We're delighted to have him back on the program. Richard Florida, welcome back to Where We Live. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. We've been talking, obviously, a lot here in Connecticut about GE's decision to pick up stakes in, in Fairfield and move to Boston. There have been a, a number of different threads we've been covering from a public policy standpoint, and you've addressed some of these in, in writing for The Atlantic and a piece that we read in the Boston Globe having to do with tax policy, this trend toward new urban campuses. But I want to start really with this idea of tax policy and incentives for companies to move. Amidst all of the praise that Massachusetts was getting for bringing this huge behemoth company to uh, Boston, 
There's also the reality of about $145 million in business incentives. Some people saying it's one of the biggest packages of business incentives ever given out like that. When you read about that, what do you think about the notion of a, a city or a state expending that type of incentive money to bring a company like GE to a city? Well, that's what really struck me about this whole issue. You know, being an urbanist, writing about the comeback of cities, what I saw initially was hooray for urbanism. Three cheers for urbanism. Big, giant, great, innovative American company moves from a suburb in Connecticut, where you are, to robust, uh, innovative city in Boston. Three cheers, hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> now, the same people who might have pointed a finger if this was a small suburb kind of forgot. And I, was, I just looked at the number. I, it was, you know, maybe this had been announced for a couple of days, and somewhere I was scanning in, in the Boston Globe, or maybe it was on my Twitter account, to be quite honest. I saw $145 million, and you know when your head jerks back, you know, for folks listening, and your, head just, your eyes pop out of your head? And I was like, that's not good. And then I noticed another number, 800 jobs. And, you know, I'm not a mathematician. I'm a social scientist, but... 145 divided by 800 is also a big number, <laughs> a very big number. That's a 180,000 or some per individual job. Now, those must be pretty good jobs if people are willing to spend $181,000. And, you know, you know, think about what $145 million could be done. Now, Boston is a comeback story. It's a city that's remade itself from the decline of its boot and shoe and textile industries to a knowledge center. But... Boston, like every other city, has pockets of poverty, urban distress and disadvantage, neighborhoods that are struggling, families that need food, that need help, that need uh, more welfare assistance, that need kids that need better schools and playgrounds. What in God's name, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I thought to myself, are you giving $145 million to one of the biggest and most profitable companies in the world when you could use that money to help build better schools, better playgrounds, support families and whatnot? So, it just kind of got my dander up, to be quite honest. Well, okay, and this is the sort of thing that we, we hear all the time from whether it's governors of states or mayors of towns competing for corporations. They say, well, yeah, you can do the numbers and say it costs $180,000 per job, but look at the jobs we'll have. They will be creative people, and they'll probably be well-paid. They'll, they'll pay us back in tax money over time, and maybe there will be spin-off jobs. They'll have great ideas, and there will be other things cropping up around this. And so there's all this ancillary revenue that will come in through this very big investment up front. What do you say when people say stuff like that? To me, it sounds almost as crazy as Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> almost as crazy. Not quite as crazy Not quite as, as crazy. Trump, but just almost as crazy. And here's why. We know it doesn't matter. Urban planners, urban economists, people who study cities for the past decades have shown that this use of, of tax incentive, of government money to lure companies, is a bribe, is an out-and-out -out bribe, and it's a fraud. Companies do not locate based on these incentives. General Electric's press release said as much. It chose Boston for its great talent, for its quality of life, for its universities, for its brain power. Now, we have sketchy details on this, but the details we have from various press reports in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Boston Globe, Connected Papers, are that other jurisdictions offered more money. So in a sense, what corporations do is pick the place they want to be, 
They pick the place they know they, that's the best for them, and then they create this little proxy bidding war. You know, they'll go to New York or to Connecticut or you know, Boston in this case or wherever else they went, Atlanta. They say, well, we'd like to move this to your town, and they create this little proxy bidding war. And what, what's awful about this is, you know, there's a group called Good Jobs First, and, and listeners should go to their website. They collect all of the information on this. Uh, several years ago, the New York Times did a big expose of this. GE is a standout performer, not only in, in making a profitable company, it is really a standout performer in bilking communities for incentives. It is one of the largest recipients of government corporate welfare of any company. And, you know, in my piece, I said, if GE really wants to be a good citizen, if it wants to attract great talent, if it wants to be seen as an innovative company, give the money back. $145 million is the, is the drop in the bucket. And, you know, you know from GE's perspective, and people in Connecticut may be rightly upset with GE, I don't think the young kids and the young engineers and the young talent they want to attract are going to go to a company that's seen as bilking the public purse and taking money out of the pockets of poor families and taking it away from education. So I said to GE in that opinion piece, if you want to be everything you say you are, give the money back. If you really want to Boston to be near great universities and talent in an urban mix, just give the money back and call it a day. But, of course, that's not terribly likely to happen, right? And, and also not terribly likely to happen is this arms race between states and between municipalities to try to get corporations like this. Is this something Congress needs to step in and do something about? Because what's happening essentially, Richard, Florida, is every single state in America is being held up against another state for every big corporation, and we just keep spending money. I mean, it used to be this was only happening around football teams or baseball teams that people wanted to grab, but now it's corporations like this almost every single day. Does Congress need to stop this? I think so, and I think there's other things we can do. So, so for one, what was so troubling about this is Massachusetts is not a place that typically gives big incentives. So, you know, it's not a southern state that was trying to lure a car factory because it was a, an economic, a state in economic crisis. This is one of America's most productive, most innovative states that has typically been good government and said no. So that's very troubling. Number two, you mentioned the football teams. You know, this is something I've written about, the, the corporate welfare giving to these billion-dollar businesses, football teams, that are worth billions, basketball teams. When the teams decided to go to L.A. and, you know, pull up shop from St. Louis, one of the things Mayor Garcetti said is they're welcome here under private money. So it's very interesting to me that the tide's beginning to turn among certain mayors saying, because the public outcry has been, we won't do this, the public outcry has been no more. So I think the one thing that can happen is that citizens and taxpayers can say no more. Uh, just like they did with football stadiums, no more of this kind of thing. We, we have to stop it. And then thirdly, I think, as you rightly point out, I think Congress has considered in the past, and it's a hard call, and I am not a constitutional uh, or federal law scholar, but are there ways to use uh, the Interstate Commerce Clause or other acts to begin to tell states this is an unfair competition? You know, our laws limit unfair competition. And is there a way at least to consider using congressional action uh, to put an end to this? But it, it really is, you know, as you said, a race to the bottom. You know, what's so terrible about these things, I don't think this is the case in GE, but a lot of companies take the incentives and run. You know, there have been so many instances of companies taking the incentives, things don't go well, and they, and they pull out. So I think, yes, both, both cities and states, taxpayers for sure have to make, an, and, and people, residents have to make an outcry. And it is something that, that Congress should consider. You know, you know I'm sorry to, to, but I think 
all of these kind of conservative Republicans running around yelling and screaming about government inefficiency, maybe it's something they should take up, you know? This is horribly inefficient. It's a subsidy to the, the Uber 1%. You know, maybe, maybe it's something Trump himself uh, could make part of his program, but but certainly Congress should undertake it. Well, let's talk about the, another piece of this, though, too, something that, that happened with GE moving out. Yes, their press release said they're going to move to a vibrant urban setting, which we'll be talking about in just a moment, exactly the sort of place that they want to attract new, young, technology-minded workers to. But, of course, there's also the notion that Connecticut's tax policy, the fact that they and others have said that we're a less-than-business-friendly state, that is something that drives companies from one place to another. You mentioned the flow of jobs to southern states like South Carolina, where cheaper labor, more available land, and and potentially more tax incentives will be able to drag jobs to to a place away from northeast corridors. In your mind, Richard Florida, how how might we rethink this notion of what it means to be business-friendly? I mean, how can we maybe spend public dollars in a way that will make businesses want to locate here, but that falls short of just outright bribing them to stay like we've done so many times? I think the literature is pretty clear. And it's funny, you know, if we were talking about medicine, all doctors all over this country and all over the world would defer to the literature, to the research studies, to the protocols. In our field of urban policy, of business location, no one cares. You know, the the practitioners, the clinicians just don't even care. So there have been study after study after rigorous study done that show that these bribes don't work, nor do most taxes. That why you you said it. Why do businesses locate where they do? Uh, They locate because they need a workforce that's applicable to that field. And in some cases, it is true. They want to cut labor costs, so they move to a Sunbelt state, or in some cases, they move to China. But in GE's case, they're talking about very highly paid knowledge workers, engineers, professionals, people who are making probably six figures and more. Business tax rates have a little role in that. Companies typically go where they can find the best and most abundant pool of these kinds of people. So in, in this case, the reasons they're locating have little to do with these tax issues, incentives, costs. What they really have to do is having spectacular universities, and not just spectacular universities. Um, I came to write about this because I was living in Pittsburgh, teaching at a spectacular university, Carnegie Mellon, watching all of my students up and leave Pittsburgh. They also have to have an urban dynamism, an excitement, a qual- I call it a quality of place, that makes people want to stay after graduating university and want to move there. It, it entices these people to come and stay there and build their lives and have jobs. So though, if you're thinking about what communities, what cities and states can do, I think it's a couple of things. One, I think investment in universities and knowledge institutions continues to make sense. Um, and places with look at the California Bay Area thing. Uh, number two, I think making sure that cities are vibrant that they're exciting, and it's not big mega projects like big new stadiums or big new convention centers. Making sure that cities have good schools and good parks and uh, places for people to bike and and walk and hang around, these small little things that this great urbanist Jane Jacobs uh, wrote about, and and really making the the community a dense, vibrant, exciting place. And I I want to stress this. It's not just about the urban vibe. You know, I I think what was interesting about Boston is it has a great center city, but having lived there, I lived in Boston, Cambridge twice, 
it has a great set of options, you know, small towns, villages, colonial places, communities with downtown centers, suburbs that offer family living. I think it's a portfolio of lifestyle options that are equally good for a young single person or a gay or lesbian couple or a married heterosexual couple with three or four kids. So I think that it's really that quality of life, if you will, it's not affecting the cost curve of companies. It's really creating a place that, that talented people, excited people, people want to be, and then companies follow. So help us now here in Connecticut, because we're hamstrung in a lot of ways. We're in between these two great urban areas of Boston and New York. An awful lot of our land is actually rural. We're thought of, though, as suburban, and that is where a lot of the political power is held. Our cities are small geographically, and they tend to be very, very poor. We don't have a great public transportation system, and our attempts to pay for a better public transportation system and some of these vibrant communities are, well, they're stymied by the fact that we have consistent budget deficits because we've got to spend money on other things. I mean, help us with a little prescription here, Richard Florida, for our little state and how we can take some of these lessons from these great urban areas and make Connecticut a place where not only businesses want to stay and build, but where people want to be and thrive. I think you know Connecticut is a fantastic state and a fantastic place to live. I'm from New Jersey, and New Jersey is a lesser (laughs) kind of situation than Connecticut. We call it the Garden State, but only parts of it are garden-like. But the point I'm trying to make is that being a state on the eastern seaboard, in what what we call the Boz Wash, the Boston, New York, Washington megalopolis, is an enormous advantage. Having a spectacular coastline and access to the coastline is a spectacular advantage. So I think what Connecticut needs to do and its communities need to do is no longer think of themselves as individual economic units. Uh, Fairfield is an economic unit. New Haven is an economic unit. We can go on and on. Greenwich is an economic unit. That all of these are part of what I call a mega region, that mega region being the Boston, Washington, New York corridor. And I think going back to GE's relocation, if you had asked me, I would have said GE will probably move to New York City. It's where most big company headquarters are going. What this signaled in my mind is that in the same way that Washington, D.C. has become, it's not just a government capital. It's kind of a bedroom community, if you will, for writers and policy wonks and all of these people who want to play in this global city scene uh, where they can locate and have a better quality of life and commute into New York City as needed. Connecticut becomes, in a way, I'm making air quotes, you can't see them, a bedroom community or a set of lifestyle communities related to all of the choices in work and economic activity related to these hubs, New York being the principal hub in this mega region, but also Boston and lots of other places. So I think that's the way to think about it. Connecticut is part not only of a set of individual economic towns or units, it is part of a mega region. And then what that means is it goes right to your point. The rail connections that are already there have made this economic unit work, the Amtrak rail connection. But then public transportation to knit and connect these smaller little towns and communities and cities into a more integrated whole to really connect those hubs and spokes to the bigger hubs, you know, the Bostons, the New Yorks, that becomes the key thing. And and if that's fast, you know, we, we should no longer measure commutes in distance, we need to measure them in time. And I think Connecticut, more than it has the lovely towns, it has the beachfront, waterfront areas, it has more rural communities. These are precisely the kinds of places 
that people want to be in. They don't want to be in kind of the generic suburb. So Connecticut needs to think about its living talent offerings in light of the larger economic unit called that mega region and figure out a strategy from going from here to there. Also, of course, Connecticut needs to make the best use of its universities and knowledge institutions it can. And it's, again, as a New England state, as a state that's invested in education, that has great private institutions, it has a wealth of, of asset to build on there. Do you think in some ways, then, that we could view, and maybe not right now as the sting is still quite fresh, that we might view the decision of a General Electric to up and move as a type of opportunity for our state? I mean, so often we are attracted to big projects that build on a waterfront or in a big vacant lot. We are attracted to the notion that we will keep an important corporate headquarters, even if we're only talking about a couple hundred jobs. These are things that we often think and talk about from public policy standpoint here. You seem to be suggesting a completely different roadmap for our state. In some ways, maybe GE leaving is a, is a good thing for us to reimagine what our state could be. Yeah, I, I think GE leaving doesn't matter in Connecticut's future. I think we still have this mentality handed down from two generations ago that corporate headquarters drive regional economies, but this GE headquarters is 800 jobs with very little connection to the local economy, you know, other than people buying a home or spending money at a restaurant. These are not jobs that are linked to General Electric's production complex. We're not talking about the General Motors 100 years ago or Ford 100 years ago building a headquarters in Detroit, but huge assembly plants that employ tens of thousands of people. We're talking about 800 jobs. And so the corporate headquarters, I think, is, is a misfocus. What, I saw this as well. You know, I saw this in Pittsburgh. Oh, we have to keep these corporate headquarters. What has allowed Pittsburgh to rebound is investing in its universities and colleges, creating spin-off companies, making sure talented people want to stay in Pittsburgh. Same thing in Detroit. It's finally turning the corner. It's no longer a conversation just about General Motors and Ford and Chrysler. It's a conversation now about building startups and focusing on new businesses and building a creative and innovative economy. That's the conversation Connecticut is having, I think. I think it is having and needs to have more of. And I don't think that – that's what's so ironic about this, with everyone cheering, you know, yo, Boston, yo, downtown Boston. This doesn't matter. What matters to Boston is MIT, <laughs> MIT and Harvard and the mix of great colleges and universities and knowledge institutions and the spin-off companies they constantly create. What matters in Boston is the quality of life of that great city and Cambridge and all the small towns. And everyone's saying three cheers for, for General Electric. I think it takes the eye off the ball kind of tragically. So for Connecticut, I think it's – I don't know if I'd say it's a good thing, but I think it's something that, that should cause introspection – suggest that the, the model of the suburban, you know, what, what we call Nerdistan, of the suburban corporate complex and, and corporate campus is a bygone era, and that Connecticut has lots of assets that perhaps have been, not neglected, but put on the back shelf, the back burner, and those are precisely the assets in terms of the quality of life, in terms of the great knowledge-based institutions, in terms of access to the biggest and most important markets in the world in greater New York. Those are the things that will drive Connecticut's future, and you know, the state still has one of the highest uh, household incomes in the advanced world. So, so when you look at it relative to other jurisdictions, it's a pretty productive, prosperous, and competitive place. And I think it now has to focus on how to maintain that. And you just said to us, Richard Florida, that you think that we're cooler and better than New Jersey. So that, that gives us something, right? Yeah, yeah, I think Connecticut, you know, for someone from the, from the New York metro area and from a working class kid, always seemed to me like a very 
green, natural, and of course it has its working class pockets, just like the one I grew up in. But it, it seemed like a very bucolic, wonderful place, you know, with, with lots of ocean and lots of green and lots of hills and great places people went to college, uh, part of New England. I, I think that, that Connecticut has this mythology about it, this narrative about it that's quite compelling. And, you know, for folks listening in, not everyone wants to and live in a 400-square-foot apartment and spend for that 400-square-foot apartment over $1,000 a square foot. And even the people who, who do so, even the people who, who have to be close to those, they want a country or summer or place where they can go on the weekend with their family. So I think Connecticut provides so much of that in a great megalopolis. It provides so much of the kind of place people want to be. You know, and you see, you see in greater New York these Hudson Valley towns that were down and out, beginning to come back as young people, even the Brooklyn, you know, types, uh, so to speak. The, the, the Brooklyn types move out and they want um, more space and some place to go. I think Connecticut offers all of that. So, again, I, I just want to place this focus not as Connecticut as a single economic unit, not as your specific town or village or city as a specific economic unit, but the mega region itself as the economic unit. And the real question is, how does my state, Connecticut, how does my jurisdiction, my particular town, connect to that mega region? Um, and in that sense, you know, maybe let others pay the cost of having the corporate headquarters and Connecticut prosper by having the, the residents and the taxpayers and the communities that, that work for and provide services to those corporate entities. In these bleak times, good to get a pep talk from Richard Florida, director of the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto, also senior editor of the Atlantic's City Lab. Richard, great to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure being with you and, and, and have me back again. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our interns today, Stephanie Reith and Ross Levin, continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and thanks for joining us.